Hi, I'm Elizabeth Fricke, and this is the Classical Connections Podcast. The opera La Rondine by Giacomo Puccini is a story of a Parisian courtesan named Magda who longs for a life of freedom and true love. Magda becomes La Rondine, or the Swallow, as she is forced to decide whether she will fly away with her lover Ruggiero or migrate back to the safety of her nest in Paris. In this episode, first we'll hear from master's musicology student Kristen Rasmussen, who wrote the program notes and will be giving pre-opera lectures for IU's production in the coming weeks. Then, we'll hear from the stage director, Crystal Manich, as she talks about her approach to directing for stage and her relationship to other Puccini operas. So my name is Kristen Rasmussen. I am a musicology MA. I am from Iowa. I got two bachelor's degrees in music history and oboe performance. Outside of being a master's student, I actually work in the music collections in the basement of the library. We digitize music down there, we build structures, so I get to listen to other people's pre-concert lectures actually and do the (laughs) structures, which is very fun. So I've learned a lot of cool information about all of them. So you've written the program notes that people will be reading with this opera, and then also giving pre-opera lectures. Yes. It's uh, it's a fun experience. Why don't you give a little bit of an overview? So it's probably important to uh, start with telling you about the characters. So Mm -hmm. the original setting is supposed to be uh, 19th century France. It centers around Magda, who's a Parisian courtesan. And then a cast of characters come with her. Notably, the most important ones are Lisette, who is Magda's maid, Rombaldo, who is Magda's long-term protector, which is essentially the guy who watches out for her in all of this, Ruggiero, who is Magda's love interest, and then Prunier, who is a poet who is involved with Lisette. What kind of historical, you know, cultural context might have actually shaped how audiences were responding to this opera? It comes around in the time of Silver Age operetta, where people were really enjoying the cheerful feel that a lot of operettas can bring, which is definitely not what we see in Puccini a lot of times. He likes a good tragedy. But yeah. World War I was really the biggest cultural context that we can put this in. It affected the actual reception of the opera pretty drastically. It was originally supposed to premiere in Vienna. He was working with a German theater based in Vienna, and after... Uh, Italy removed their alliance with Austria-Hungary and sided with the Allies. It immediately put Puccini in a really bad spot. He's working with the German theater while being in Italy, and he was accused of a lot of things, financially aiding the enemy and treason and all these things. So he actually tried to break the contract originally and just stop working on the opera, but he wasn't able to do that. So they got the premiere moved to Monte Carlo, which was beneficial in some ways. He could actually have a premiere now. But he still experienced a lot of backlash. That financial aiding of the enemy was the biggest thing that would continue to come up. The one-time performance that was supposed to happen in Paris got canceled because of that. Oh, wow. And it really led to the fact that people don't know about Rondine. Can you talk a little bit more about the operetta-like elements that people might find? The most obvious one Mm -hmm. is the dance. Operetta had a long tradition of really spoken dialogue interspersed between musical numbers, which he doesn't want to do, so he avoids that. Um, And then the use of dance. He uses dance throughout the entirety of the opera. It represents a lot of different things, love and Magda as herself and the nightlife of Paris. But the other thing is the story number he uses within Act One. The goal of them was to give a fairy tale story uh, comparison to Mm. what was happening in the opera. And it does a lot of foreshadowing 
Doretta, who is the girl talked about in this story number, has rejected a king, so she's rejected a wealthy suitor, and Prunier has started this story, and he decides that he can't finish it. He's not sure why he's re she's rejected him. He can't really come up with an explanation. So he challenges Magda to finish it for him. <laughs> and she says that Doretta rejected this king because she'd fallen in love with a student. And this foreshadows what Magda eventually does. She rejects Rombaldo and the status and money and then picks up Ruggiero because she feels as though she's found true love. But Doretta's story never ends. And it actually, I feel like it adds a lot more weight to the heartbreaking finish because you see Doretta's fall in love, everything's great. And we don't get that with Magda. She doesn't get her happily ever after. Yeah, I love the idea that Punier has like challenged Magda to finish the story. And then she kind of literally does finish the story yeah. um, in her own life. I think the dance in particular is what makes it feel so different than other Puccini works because yeah. of the entire thing feels like a dance essentially and you're not going to really get that anywhere else. That's really interesting. Why don't we talk a little bit more about the dance elements? One of Magda's earliest arias, she's describing an affair she had a little bit ago. And when she's initially remembering the feelings, she's just talking about what it brought out in her, you get this imperceptible waltz behind her. You can kind of feel the triple meter, but it's not super there. And you can tell that this is, this is a dance and a feeling she's remembering. So immediately we get this little hint of dance that's representing her feelings. Mm. And then you feel the woodwinds come in. And then a few bars later, the strings come in again with them and they're plucking out the triple meter. And it's obviously at this point, she's really thinking about this dance yeah. as she talks about what actually went on in the affair and the actual actions rather than just the feelings it invoked. And then the entirety of act two is set in a dance bar and it becomes diegetic there as well. So mm. the characters are actually hearing and feeling the same dances that we're hearing, yeah. which really adds to that effect of how important it becomes. And then at the end of the opera as well, when Magda is confessing to Ruggiero, you can hear hints of the waltzes that she has experienced previously in the opera. And just hearing those little melodies and those little hints of the dances that she's experienced and the things she is thinking about. Well, she's like, I love you and I care about you, but I have to give you up. I love this idea of dance as being this memory device. I think one of the really powerful things about dance in this opera is that it's this embodiment of what it feels like to fall in love yeah. and be in love. There's very physical representation of these relationships. And so to return to those dance themes, it just grips onto you even more. It hurts. <laughs> it does. Yeah, it definitely does. The original ending is very representative of the concept of it's not you, it's me, but it's something relatable. There's plenty of people that have felt that feeling of I have to give up either an object or a person or a relationship because I can't do this. It's not healthy for you. It's not healthy for me because of what I've done, not because of what you've done. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely fair. And you've mentioned a couple times that there are different versions of this opera, like different endings. I wonder if you could mention a little bit more about that. So in the second version, Prunier appears twice in Act 3, mm -hmm. but he is actually the deciding force in getting Magda to leave. And 
heartbreakingly, she doesn't even say goodbye to Ruggiero because oh. she doesn't want to hurt him. And then the third version, he didn't really finish. <laughs> it eventually was finished in the 90s and premiered in 94. In this one, rather than our sobbing Ruggiero at the end of the opera, we get Magda on stage alone because Ruggiero has gotten an anonymous letter informing him of all the things that Magda has done, and he's not happy with her. They have a very heated duet, and then he ends up leaving her on stage alone, which is the reverse in a lot of ways of what we experience in the original version. So oh, it's, wow. a little, it's a little more intense, but he didn't see that uh, premiered during his lifetime. That's really interesting. I mean, that really changes things. Yeah. It's a different ending. <laughs> it's another feeling of that people can relate to in a lot of ways. You make the person you care about angry at you by not being truthful. So after understanding that he's gone through this issue with an affair, there's maybe a bit of angst from Puccini's end. He needs to project onto this. But <laughs> Yeah, I just feel honest. Mm -hmm. Like, they're all believable, but they are very different. I mean, they do change the way that you think about these characters pretty dramatically. You know, within this small-scale opera, I mean, I think it's like an hour and a half. The orchestration, I think, in particular, really aids with the love feeling. Act one feels lovely. There's a lot of high-light woodwind lines that don't feel forced with the way they're orchestrated. And then even in the next aria that I talked about where Magda is relating that affair she had, that beginning part, she's got all of these high notes. I think she hits an A above the staff at one point right before she goes into the actual feeling of the waltz. There's a little bit of angst in there and then she just falls into the rest of the aria where it feels like she's falling in love. It's very sweet. Yeah, it's very effective. What are, what are the important themes that really stand out to you when you think about La Rondine when you watch this opera? The romanticism and realism is mm. really important. I think we see that in Magda herself. We get this hopeless romantic, but without that ending, that realism that we get struck with is more intense. She has to really say, like, I have to view the world as it is rather than what I want it to be. That ties into that role of gender. Because of the context of the time she's living in and the life she has lived as a courtesan, she knows that there will be judgment from Ruggiero for what she's done and judgment from his mother, who thinks she's a virtuous woman. <laughs> A lot of this is happening because of the way women are viewed and the way a profession like this is viewed. And even in the 21st century, it's still a, still a controversial topic. So it's easy to connect in that way. As a woman in particular, like she feels like she has to give something up because of the way men will judge her for the decisions she's made that have helped her survive and be stable. She just has to experience that misogyny and come to terms with it, which is pretty powerful. You really are experiencing this tension between an old world and anxieties of modernity in a sense of yeah. what the world actually looks like and where I could be going and the choices that I could make, but the reality that's pulling me back as well. I think it's really fascinating. to have you here crystal yeah thank you i wanted to get started by talking a little bit about your background what brought you into the world of directing 
A few things. One was that when I was younger, uh, like in middle school, I really fell in love with musical theater and mm. wanted to be on stage as talent. And it wasn't until later in high school where I had a drama teacher who was really wonderful and she said, I think you're a really great actress, but I, I do think that you have the ability to lead and, and you're you're more of a director. And I want you to try directing this scene. And mm -hmm. So I tried it and I really fell in love with it. But I had fallen in love with opera actually the year before when I was 15. I put on a recording and I thought it was going to be the same as musical theater. And it was actually Puccini's Tosca. With those opening chords, it was anything but musical theater. It was such a different feeling. Yeah. And I really became fascinated and kind of obsessed with it. It was Maria Callas recording, so I just listened to everything mm. that she had recorded. And so that's how I learned repertoire. It was just listening to all those operas, Lucia, Butterfly, Bohème. And then um, I saw my first opera and didn't like the staging. And I said, well, I guess I want to change that and make that better uh, because <laughs> I really wanted people to interact with one another and to actually say I love you to each other's faces rather than looking out into yeah. the audience. That's really fascinating. And I think it's so funny that you say that I really love to act, but the singing isn't as much where there's so many opera singers and especially students who come up in this musical song tradition performing as a singer primarily and then having to kind of learn how to act alongside that really comes secondary I think to a lot of people and I noticed that some of the directing that you've done recently is also for screen you know film directing and I wonder how you approach these different kinds of directing differently from how you direct an opera I think fundamentally directing is the same across all genres with just some exceptions and some adjustments, I would say. Mm -hmm. Certainly for the film stuff that I've been doing, it has been opera as film. In that sense, the only difference I would say is that it's much smaller on screen and mm -hmm. the way that I have to approach directing an opera for screen is very different for stage because I'm thinking more about what I'm telling by the size of the frame mm -hmm. and what's in the frame. Whereas in the theater, I'm looking at the entire mise-en-scene, the entire picture, which would be a wide shot, translating that to film terms. So it's a wide shot all the time. The way that I edit, if you equate the film cut to a lighting cue in theater, mm. it's the same thing because you're, you're telling the audience where to look and what to see. I see a very clear bridge between those two things that does, obviously film comes from theater, you know, yeah. at, its, at its core. Right. Um, and film comes from opera because if you think about opera, you know, there were as many operas being written in 17 and 1800 as there are TV shows now. But opera was the thing, and it was the film or the TV of its time. The use of music in film is certainly a play on the use of music in opera mm -hmm. and sort of getting that emotional effect. So Yeah, that's really fascinating. You know, I haven't really thought about the idea that you know, there's this freedom in having this big open space, but also there's a challenge of being able to direct your audience. I wonder if you have to take a different approach to an opera that doesn't come from so much of that canon, something like La Boheme or Tosca. I try to approach each project as if it's new to me and new to the audience, mm. even with six bohems under my belt and three butterflies. Although it's nice to go back to bohème and to be a little older and you know a couple years older than the last time and to sort of take, yeah. and the story changes for me, right, as to what's important and what it's about. Mm -hmm. um, bohème is one of those things that never gets stale. With this piece, with La Rondine, I think that 
The biggest challenge for me was knowing the history of it, that people have written it off because, well, it was Puccini's attempt at operetta and it's not quite successful, but I just sort of ignored that and approached it just like a music theater piece. And what I discovered was that some productions have not been successful in executing this piece because the ending's really challenging and it depends on which ending you do, but the ending that we're doing, the fact that she actually makes a decision um, where she's taking control of her own destiny, that's a very modern concept. Mm -hmm. And when you're thinking about 1917, which is when this was written, there were definitely conversations about, obviously, women's suffrage, the right to vote in America, certainly, and in other countries. So I think that this is Puccini hastening the new decade and the new era and sort of saying women are going to be able to choose. Now, whether or not he actually thought of that that deeply, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you that there is something very unique about her character in that she makes decisions in each act as to what her next step in life is going to be. And and the fact that no one dies in La Rondine, (laughs) I think was probably also problematic at the time. And it's problematic now. I think people expect people to die in dramatic operas. But this opera is a comedy and a drama. And we've really brought it out in this production. Because that's life. (laughs) Life is funny and sad, right? (laughs) At the same time, at its most basic thing. So... I really think this piece is challenging for that reason, and and I think it's hard for an audience to walk away knowing what to think, but maybe that's good that they'll walk away having their own opinion, and and we don't have to give it to them every time. The ending really does lend itself to people making their own choice. Yeah, and I think something else that's difficult about this yeah, you have a female protagonist who is allowed to make her own decisions, but there's also this tension, right? I mean, she's a courtesan, She's in that old world. In that old world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's another point, too, because the first page of music Puccini writes in Prunier's first line is, in Paris, people are falling in love. And there's this whole conversation about, well, what is love? Is that something that's sustainable, essentially? Yeah. And this was a question. And and Magda starts to think, oh, maybe I should try falling in love because I fell in love years ago. And maybe I should try to find that again because I've been, you know, living this life of a courtesan. Part of me thinks that this piece is also about the end of that courtesan era, which it definitely died out very quickly after this piece was written. I think that there's something in there, too, where sort of here's the writing on the wall. This idea of kept women in this high society is just not going to be sustainable. Yeah. And it's funny because I've turned to our conductor, Lewis, several times in this, and I just go... God, that passage is Wagner. It's like Tristan and Isolde towards the end. It just becomes, there's just this section, the very end, last two pages, that just becomes this incredible homage to Wagner, and it's very heightened. Puccini was playing with these ideas, obviously, and then throughout the whole score, I keep turning to him, and I go, that sounds like Gershwin. You know, there's like someone to watch over me. There's an entire, I swear to God, Puccini wrote it first, And it would make sense that Gershwin and and all these incredible composers from the middle of the century would have known Puccini's work and been looking towards him. And so to hear that from this piece is incredible to me. Well, since we've been talking about Puccini's music, I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about the role that his music plays in really telling this story and what it tells us about these characters as well. He has motives 
that he writes for every character, especially in this piece, Lisette, who is the maid. He just sprinkles throughout, and you know she's supposed to be on stage doing something during that point. But even when she's not on stage, and it's sort of recalled, even Lewis turned to me one day, he was like, why is Lisette's theme here? She's not, you know, <laughs> anywhere near coming on stage. And I think, in a way, Lisette represents the freedom that Magda... I think that's why Magda treats her well, even yeah. though she's her servant. So it's a weird thing, even though Lisette's very happy to be a servant, actually. And when you come see the show, you'll see that manifests in Act 3. But also, this piece is very psychological. And mm. again, in rehearsal, we've just discovered a lot of just, it's a lot of subtext, actually, which in opera is really hard to achieve. But Puccini does it in the music. He puts these themes that are Magda longing for that connection that she had years ago with, with the young man. Mm -hmm. um, that she wants to recapture. There are things that come up in Act 3 that are recollections of music from Act 1, so it's fascinating how, how he, I mean, he does that in Bohème, certainly, but it's just so much deeper, I feel like, in this piece. Yeah, and I think it's, again, so interesting thinking about the depth to which Puccini's music speaks to these characters, not just as a surface level, but the way that they're actually moving through this story and the way that they're reflecting on things that happened before the story and things that will happen after. Feeling this tension between past, present, and future, feeling this transition, I think people Absolutely. relate to, yeah. Absolutely. There's a nostalgia written into his music in this piece and Magda remembering that and calibrating, like, you know, what is, what is this that I'm feeling and why am I recalling these things? And that's, we're always on her perspective. That's something that is really important because she's only not on stage for, gosh, a total of five minutes maybe That's in the entire right. piece. Yeah. And it's very similar to Butterfly in that way. I mean, yeah. Butterfly is completely POV. The only time we don't see her is the top of Act One. I think that Puccini really, he always wrote women very well. Mm -hmm. And certainly this is no exception. I wonder if you could speak a little bit to what the rehearsal process has looked like for this opera. You mentioned the fact there's a large chorus, there's a lot of dance going on as well. <laughs> I imagine it devolves into chaos. There's a lot of, there's a lot of waltzing uh, mm -hmm. in Act Two, and that's waltz was revolutionary when it came out because it was the first time people were actually dancing together. Mm -hmm. And then out of that, you know, there's tango and all other kinds of couples dances. So yeah, we definitely have waltz as a major element of Act Two, and we have dancers from the dance department in mm -hmm. the show to amplify that dance in Act Two. And they have become such a beautiful addition to something that's already very busy. But they add to that idea that I mentioned before about us being on Magda's side and, and from her perspective and, and her trying to regain a feeling and so suddenly the dancers bring that out and she mm. is the happiest that she'll ever be probably for a while in this yeah. act two moment. And I've utilized the dancers to try to support her wanting to change her life. Yeah, it's been really fun and the choristers have had fun learning how to waltz and the principals as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I've heard. <laughs> I really believe that rehearsal is meant to be for exploration and not achieving mm -hmm. perfection. Yeah. Because I think that perfection in performance is not achieved by a human and should not be expected, which is what I think makes humanity incredible. If you know, we could always do operas yeah. with androids and have things be perfect, but I think it'd be quite boring. 
I think that uh, in rehearsal, you know, really giving performers the space to explore and to learn how to tell this story and for them to have ownership over it because they're the ones who have to perform it, not me. Yeah. I don't have to get up there. So I always really try to empower people, even in professional settings, not just a student setting, empower people to create their performance that they really want to explore and be living. And yeah. it's definitely clicked and it's definitely um, happened at this point. So I'm really excited to make that transition to stage. That is exciting. I, I do a university residency, I guess, every couple of years, and I really enjoy doing that because it just reminds me of what's important. What is important about performance? What is challenging about performance? And how can I be a conduit to help that person have an epiphany so that they can then carry it with them after they graduate? I mean, yeah. I think that's that for me is really important. My hope is that the message about a new era is upon us is is going to be present in the production that's my hope but more importantly than that the idea that people do have the ability to take their own destiny into their hands and i think that that's something i think we're still having conversations about that even now that's something that's universal about the piece that will never necessarily change right that people will always be striving to make decisions for themselves and and what is the future of how we as a society decide to interact Finally, I got the chance to talk to the two women sharing the leading role of Magda. This isn't the first time that these two have shared a role. Tiffany Cho, who you'll hear from first, and Rebecca Ochtenberg, who you'll hear from second, both starred as Mimi in IU's 2021 production of La Boheme. Why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself? What is it that you, that you study here, that you do here? Um, I'm pursuing my performer's diploma and I'm studying vocal performance. And this is my eighth year oh, wow. because I did my undergraduate and my master's degree. What does your life look like as a PD student? It's very performance-based. Yeah. So I can really focus on like doing my recital and performance opportunities. And I'm taking opera workshops that really help me further my skills on stage. So I hear people talk about opera workshops sometimes. Like, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so uh, for grad level and up, mm -hmm. there are two opera workshop classes available to take. One's led by Carol Vanessa, and then the second one is by Heidi Grant Murphy, who is my teacher. I guess that entails doing scenes and just learning a scene. But in Carol's op shop, you actually do a whole act of an opera. So we did Don Giovanni last semester. Wow. So That's that intense. That's yeah. like a it was lot. a lot. It was a lot, but it, I learned a lot. How has that impacted your approach to performing? I think it's really helped me come up with a system for myself to learn the music and to get the staging and to get the acting because that all has to work to make an opera work. And just getting on stage and doing the acting and working with others in a collaborative way, really, mm -hmm. I think is what is so important about these kind of classes. Staging and acting is maybe not something that people are as focused on earlier in your, your career. Right, right. So getting to hone in on that. Yeah, and like the collaborative aspect of opera, yeah, I think is what is really different mm -hmm. and what I love about it. 
Yeah, that's what I love about it too. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's like a clock. You know, like everything has to go a certain way for it to work. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like magic. Something about La Rondine as well is, I mean, there's a lot of like intimate moments. Yeah. In the opera, and to be able to kind of be close Mm -hmm. to people is something that I think works best now that you kind of have the freedom to move about the space. Yes, and to just really, like, connect. It's very intimate. Yeah, I wonder if that's something that you have to work with at all. I mean, the way that you work with staging. It just becomes a matter of how important consent is, Mm -hmm. and you just check in and make sure the other person feels comfortable. And I think that communication is really what's important. Yeah, this is like very serious, being so close to someone, especially like after the two years we've had, it's just always important to just check in and be like, hey, you okay with Mm -hmm. this? And then, yeah, and I think the space that the director and everybody has created has felt so safe. That's great, yeah. That it's been just really a great process and we're all really good friends now. Mm -hmm. So it's just been fun. (laughs) That's awesome. I'm really glad. Yeah. I wonder if we could talk about how La Rondine does compare to other Puccini operas. Um, I think the music in its essence is very similar. You know, the style is similar, but La Rondine has been very different. People think it's like very lighthearted. I find it very emotional because it's so raw Mm. and real. There's a degree of separation when you watch something like La Boheme. You don't feel like you're really a part of that story. But with this particular opera, it's really easy to see yourself in any of these characters. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, and it's interesting that you say that, because I feel the same way, and yet, yeah, why is it that we feel separated to some extent from the characters in La Boheme? Because I think that there's still a dreamy quality right. in La Rondine, right? So I wonder if maybe we could talk about your role and who Magda is. Magda is the narrator of this particular opera. I just love this opera because it's from the viewpoint of a woman, which you don't really get that too often in opera. The fact that she makes a decision at the end best for her instead of, you know, a circumstance, Mm. I think that's very modern. Yeah, what is it like to play Magda? It's so much fun. Yeah, (laughs) because it is. She breaks a lot of those stereotypes that women have in opera where you're just the love interest. It's just so fun because she actually makes decisions, she has her own thoughts, Mm -hmm. and Puccini takes the time to explore her feelings in a way that's not shallow. And and this is one of my favorite parts about the show, is that Magda and Lizette are actually friends, and she has friends that are women. Mm -hmm. I mean, how incredible is that? Yeah. (laughs) Is this an opera that breaks the Bechdel, that passes the Bechdel test? Huh. Maybe it is. I just thought about that. Could you that. remind me exactly what that test is? The Bechdel test usually gets applied to films yeah. where you have to have an instance where two female characters have a conversation that doesn't mention men. It does. It does. So I think it does pass It does pass it. I think that's why I like it so much. <laughs> that must be why. There's like a scene where we literally just talk about, is that my hat? Like, you stole my hat. And, like, she's like, yeah, I did. <laughs> and, and it's great because it's, like, it's just so playful. Yeah. And so real. And mm-hmm. I, I really love that relationship between Magda and Lizette. I yeah. Think that's it's a great relationship. Yeah. I think that's that's what's so great about this opera is that, like, when it uses Magda as this central character, you get to see her as a full... Full person. Yeah, a full person. Yeah. I felt like that was missing in Bohem for me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you played Mimi in Bohem. Yeah. Can you maybe, like, talk about the how the experience of playing Mimi might feel 
different. A little bit yeah. different, yeah. I love that character, too. Mm-hmm. But as an actor, there's just less to work with because it's from his viewpoint. Yeah. And you're coming in as a sick woman who falls over in the first measure, which is, you know, <laughs> I understand the concept, but it's just, it's harder to relate to mm-hmm. in that way because there isn't much exposition about what she's feeling and what she's thinking. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. I know one of the things about this opera is that it hasn't been performed very much. Yeah. yeah. I wonder how you think about performing an opera that has less of its own canon Mm -hmm. of performances. I think it's great. There's just so much creative freedom. But Puccini writes everything he wants on the page. So to be able to really dissect that and interpret that in my own way is very special. Yeah, and I really like, there's two endings to this. Opera. Right, because there's multiple versions of it. Yeah, but too. I really like this ending. Okay. Yeah, I really <laughs> like this ending. And I think that open-endedness makes this whole process more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So as we're just kind of reflecting mm-hmm. on the opera, I wonder if, you know, there might be any larger themes or what it could mean to stage and perform and even for audiences to Mm -hmm. view this opera in 2022 um as a woman like i feel like we still deal with with, like very similar pressures in our day-to-day life yeah to find a future that that feels secure exactly but mm -hmm. i want to live my own life yeah yeah so I, i think it's a very empowering message at the end of the day even though she goes back to her old life i don't think that's that is the only way of reading that ending. Yeah. It's sad, but also, yeah, life goes on, right? It's no one dies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And she's just doing the best for herself and him, mm-hmm. which I think is so awesome. <laughs> but yeah, she makes that choice. It's not mm-hmm. anybody like taking her away. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Do you think that there is something that we can learn from this story, like a moral or anything like that? I would say... <laughs> that's interesting. I don't know. I, <laughs> I mean, that's it. It's just interesting because it, more than a moral, it's just like you watch it and you go, "Yeah, that sounds. That looks right." <laughs> it's like that happens. <laughs> that moral happens is, to me. Yep. Yeah. Life is hard. Life sometimes. is hard sometimes. <laughs> that's literally, I think, what the meaning. Like, life is hard sometimes, and you got to make tough choices. That's fair. But at the end of the day, you know, you got to make that choice for yourself. I think if that is a message, that's yeah. the message. What a simple message, right? But at least you get to make those choices. Exactly, yeah. 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 And like, you should have the freedom to make those choices. The whole concept of freedom is so big in this it opera. Is. And I think she does feel free at the end. This is my interpretation. I think she does feel free at the end. Mm-hmm. She got what she was looking for. And she was like, this is not what I want. She's able to move through life and say, here are the things that matter to me. Exactly. And here are the experiences that I've had and what I've learned from those experiences. And what I want to take away from those experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I love that she shares that with people, too. I oh, love that yeah. she's so open. She is. And she tells him, too, at the mm-hmm. end. She's like, this isn't right for us, so I'm going to go back and you go home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's so honest about it, too. Yeah, she's so fair, I think. At the end, yeah, she is very fair. Yeah. I think she was a little... No, yeah, maybe a little less a so little at the beginning. A little less so but... in the middle when she was lying. We've all been there. We've all been there. <laughs> you know, had a good night out, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't think she thought that far ahead. I, I don't think so. You know, I think it really was just a fun night out for her. Yeah. Yeah, and then she fell in love, you know? Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> 
talking about La Rondine and the work that you've done with IU Opera for this show. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm a second year performer diploma student. I actually ended up moving to Bloomington with my wife three years ago for her to start her DM in voice. And when we moved here, I saw a couple shows at IU. I started taking some private lessons with a teacher here and I realized this was a place I was really interested in being. So I applied and I auditioned. And so then I ended up starting in fall of 2020. I was doing a little bit of research and I noticed You've played Alice in Falstaff. Yeah. And you've also been in another Puccini opera, right? I think with Tiffany as yeah. well. Yeah! I think we were both so excited to be double cast in this again. And also last semester in the fall opera workshop, we were double cast as Donna Anna. Yeah, we really like working together, so it was pretty cool. What does preparing for an opera like La Rondine look like from a performer's perspective? Yeah, well with this opera specifically, something that I haven't had a ton of experience with is that there's not much written about it, there aren't a ton of recorded performances. I've done new works where there's only one recording or there's no recording and obviously there's nothing written about it, but to have something that's relatively old and placed within a style that you'd expect to be able to find like 15, 20 different performances of online, that was really surprising to me because I really do enjoy sort of, I guess a window into my process is I like to mark up my score while I listen to a recording and so I'll like have the recording on, when I finish it I'll switch to a different one and just keep marking up. This is the first show in a while where I've run out of recordings to listen to right. easily. That is interesting. And yeah, I think, you know, often performers will say like, oh, I don't want to listen to recordings mm -hmm. before I start working on this. And in some ways, you're kind of forced to really find your own voice in this character, I think, because there's not as much to draw on, which is interesting. I maybe feel a little bit differently. So I think sometimes oh, yeah. with a role like Mimi, where so many people have sung it, I think that gives you a little bit more freedom where I think when you think of Magda and Rondine, you think of the very few singers who've created these benchmark recordings. Right. And so for me, at least, it's actually a little bit harder because you have Anna Mofo or Angela Gheorghiu like in your head and you can't go, oh, okay, I want something that really contrasts with that because it just doesn't exist or it's not easy right. to find. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, maybe when you have like a wider web of singers to keep in mind, there is a way to find your own voice within that web. But yeah, I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about the character of Magda um, and especially, you know, the ways that maybe you apply your own experiences to a role like that. Something that at least for me in terms of preparation has been a little bit challenging is she's like very artful. She's very seductive. She's really skilled in that because that's kind of her job, right? And so sort of that level of grace is something that I struggle with throughout the rehearsal process. We've all sort of been getting like posture reminders mm. and like, oh, you know, you wouldn't pick up your glass until like somebody indicates to you that it's okay for you to pick up your glass. Like things like that where like, because of modern life, that's not something that I'm always thinking about. I wonder if there are any pieces of your own personality that you bring to this character when you portray her. Personality wise, she has sort of a dreamy quality that um, I think that I also sometimes can have, like I'm a little bit of a daydreamer. Especially in act one, we really see that a lot, but I think you could also argue that basically all of the events of the opera are tied to the fact that she really is really connected with like a fantasy life that she right. isn't currently leading and then tries to sort of make a reality. 
and I don't know, I think to be a young singer trying to make it work, you have to have some connection to like dreaming and wanting to make those dreams happen. Uh, yeah, and I love what you're saying about this kind of dreamy quality, because to some extent it is an opera singer's opera. <laughs> I mean, or just like a young dreamer's opera. I mean, I feel like what you're saying is so true that like anyone can kind of see themselves reflected in this character. I mean, this this idea of imagining something out there for yourself, you know, imagining what choices you could make differently. Yeah, although, of course, at the end of the opera, everybody's life kind of resets back to what it was. Right. So Magda goes back to Rambaldo. Lisette stops trying to be an actress and goes back to being a maid. Presumably, Ruggiero goes home to his parents and, like, marries a nice girl. This yeah. is, yeah, definitely a 20th century life. <laughs> yeah, everyone I know died in World War One, kind of an opera. Yeah, yeah. we're not going to be too idealistic anymore. Yeah. I think there is an uncertainty that rests at the heart of this opera to an extent. I think we talk about how, you know, a lot of these female characters are in positions that they're in because of financial instability. And I wonder if there is an uncertainty at play here, what the best decision you could make, where your choices could take you. I'm not sure there's as much uncertainty necessarily for yeah. Magda, right? I think she kind of knows that the thing that she's doing is temporary, yeah. the thing that she's doing isn't sustainable, but she wants to try it anyway. Mm -hmm. And I think there is sort of a nihilism right now in the culture where That's like, true. I do see that a little bit reflected in this. Yeah, the nihilism, I think, is an interesting is an interesting point that you bring up. I think that's something that a lot of people relate to, especially younger people. So it is an interesting, I think, choice to have Magda as someone who's a little bit younger, yeah. who is 25, because that's still relatively early on in her life as well. I wonder if there's an impact on playing her as younger. I definitely think so. Coming into the process, I'd always thought of her as mid-30s, like really old for this time, which also impacts the end of the opera when Ruggiero's mom writes and says, I'm so glad you're getting married to this this woman shall be the mother to our children and thinking of how age would impact that. But Crystal, our director, wanted to set her younger and I think that that's really great because it puts more pressure on the external circumstances to be the things that are dividing them apart as opposed to the May-December thing, which is sometimes as portrayed as that you have a much older woman, this very young tenor, she is really reliving her childhood with him mm. and he ends up being a little bit hollow yeah. versus they're on a little bit more equal footing in the relationship. I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about working with Crystal Manage and working with the rest of the cast. You know, how that rehearsal process has been, I mean, how the creative process has been with everyone together. It's been really great. Honestly, we've all been saying how great the vibe in the room is, which is like such a wishy-washy thing to say, but <laughs> it's been really fun. It's really serious when we're working, obviously. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's felt both high pressure to live up to what you can do, but low pressure in terms of being perfect every time, which is great. Yeah, and honestly, I haven't had a ton of experiences being directed by a woman. When I've been in like a principal role, I've been a cover. Um, and so that's been pretty cool. You know, it doesn't happen that often. She's really focused on realism and on like moments of stillness versus specific moments of motion. I don't know if that's how she would describe it, but that's kind of what it feels like on the performance end of it. And yeah, I really love that. It really helps me bring out the things that I think are easy for me to not tap into because the scale is big, because it's often musically so grand that it's easy to exaggerate or to fall back on like expressive tropes, I guess. Mm -hmm. Instead, like she really pushes us to connect with the text and stay grounded within that. I think I've covered everything that I wanted to cover. Are there any, you know, last things that you want to mention in regards to 
opera or maybe you know if people want to find the work that you do or if there's anything coming up for you if you want to find more about me i guess you can go to my website which is rebeccaochtenberg.com and the next thing i have for certain coming up is in september i'm singing older alice and glory denied down in texas with permian basin opera um it's my third time doing the role it's the only role i've ever repeated and i just keep doing it um (laughs) But yeah, come see this opera. I would really recommend listening to it ahead of time, just because I think this is an opera that really pays off a little bit of familiarity. So many of the themes come back in ways that are really heartbreaking, and I think even if you don't listen ahead of time, you'll get it on a subconscious level, but I think you'll get enough of a bonus from having just listened through one time. see IU's performances of La Rondine live at the Musical Arts Center and online at IU Music Live on March 5th, 10th, and 11th at 7.30 p.m. Check out the IU Opera and Ballet Theater website at operaballet.indiana.edu for more information about subscriptions, tickets, and how to further support opera and ballet. Thank you again to Kristen Rasmussen, Crystal Manich, Tiffany Cho, and Rebecca Ochtenberg for joining me this week. And of course, Thank you to the IU Jacobs Office of Entrepreneurship and Career Development for their support. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, contact us at IU Classical Connections on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll see you next time.